an instant landmark of its genre. Let's go. That's the blurb we all need. Joshua Rothkopf of LA Times talking about Dune Part 2. That's right, ALB. Thundering in the theaters this Friday. I'm sure it's going to make massive business. I was lucky enough to see it at a sneak peek last week. We'll talk about Dune Part 2, I promise. No spoilers. I'm sure a lot of you are going to go see it. So less said the more, but I will... Uh, be very delicate my review of what is just a fantastic movie and a film that clearly people will be talking about through much of 2024. Our old movie, one of my all-time favorites, The Third Man, which I referenced because that was part of the costas Mankwitz conversation. More on that in just a second. Carol Reed's all-time classic. And also our wild card, fantastic, Chris Castle. That's right. A director named Christopher who made a movie about Oppenheimer. It's not Christopher Nolan. It's Chris Castle. He's even better. Okay. Yeah. The doc is called To End All War, Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb. It's currently available on Peacock. I mean, there was somebody on the subway who actually said that documentary is better than the movie. So there's a lot of buzz around this doc. I want people to go check it out. Even better, that's, huh? That's what people were saying on the subway. That's great. That's absolutely right. That's That's been verified. So we'll see. Thanks again to Chris for coming on. You're going to enjoy that uh, documentary. Before we get into the SAG Awards recap, which is a place over the weekend, Chris Cody and his family went to New York City. You fell in love with New York. You're, you're posting pictures on Twitter and Instagram. You're all in on NYC. And, and you thought that that picture was professionally taken. Nope, just me on my iPhone. I give it an immediate retweet. Dude, like, I, I don't know. New York, just something about it this week. Like I, I was in and out 48 hours, saw Hamilton, ate great Chinese food where I took a picture. Apparently, Marvelous Miss Maisel was there. Wohop. Yeah, amazing. I love that. Have you been there? No, that was originally you said, I'm going to be in New York. I said, great. I live in Jersey, as you know, close by. Let me know. Maybe we'll grab lunch Friday. You go, okay, Thursday, I'm busy. Friday, I'll text you. No text ever came. Well, until I, I texted you, until I retweeted you, they're like, okay, he retweeted me so he's aware. And I think I, I sent like a fire emoji or something to the picture. Then you're like, dude, I, I went to this Marvelous Missile Basin place. You'd love it. I'm like, I'm going to text me Friday. Just go, by the way, I'm not going to be able to make lunch, but I'm loving New York. That's true. I, I do feel it's weird when, like, if you were in Miami with your entire family, like, I'm not yeah. going to come and meet all the, like, you know, as much as I'd love to meet your old family, you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. different. If I'm alone in New York, yeah. I'm like, okay, let's meet one. up for lunch. I was with my wife and kid. And like I said, it was 48 hours. Friday, we were flying out in the afternoon. So yeah. it wasn't like, uh, it was a solo venture. I could, I could have texted you and said, hey, we can't hook up. Like, that's just, that's on me. But, yeah. dude, New York. It was like the first time I've really been there in a long time where I wasn't working at all. So I just had time to like explore. look around and explore and eat good pizza and good Chinese yeah. food. And the weather right. was as a South Florida guy. I like 40 degrees for a few yeah, days. Well, so chill I'm like, as well. I agree with you. Loving the weather. And it was just like gorgeous sunsets and just great food. The timing of everything we did worked out perfectly in and out. And it was just, yeah, dude, I, it was the first time I had really gotten this. We were in the good places like West Village and Chelsea, right. like, you know, no Times Square. Like I was in the right areas. Yes. So it was just it was the first time I was really like, I kind of get it now. I had never really gotten New York of like why everyone says it's so great. And it's just oh, everyone's so busy. Everyone's on their phone. It feels like everyone's important. Mm -hmm. I'm, I walk around like where I'm at and it's just like everyone's just like, man, right. Walgreens, yep. Like everyone's in New York. Everyone's got everyone's like walking yeah. quick. Like you just hear so many quick flashes of conversations. Yes. It's like some guy walks by. It's like, I hated when she said that. It's like, what? I'm curious now what you're talking about. You just yeah. hear these like quick because everyone's alone. Everyone's in their phone. Everyone's talking on the phone, man. It's just, I don't know, man. I love New York this weekend. I love that you're all in, man. There's definitely a relentless energy about New York City, which everybody always mentions. And and you're right about the fact that poo-poo Times Square. There have been people who have gone to New York. Oh, I'm not crazy about Times Square. I go, Nobody ever said Times Square was New York right. City. That, that That is a tourist trap of New York City. Yes. You go anywhere else and you'll see a real New it's York like City South with a little Beach. Side. 
Correct. Like I was going to say the equivalent to Miami would be South Beach. Yeah, yeah. that's not really Miami, but yeah, it's the part everybody knows. Oh. But I'm glad you. What was the Maisel hook again? It was a restaurant you went to. It was like, just I like this, this, no. It was just it's called Wo Hop W O Hop, and it was just a like a spot that I found on some website. I was like, oh sure, let's go here. It looks good. Yeah. The best Chinese food I've had ever. And Dude, just, and I, okay. right, the booth they sit us at, there's like pictures of like Miss Maisel and Billions. Apparently they'd done scenes there or whatever. Jim Honey, yes. Dude, okay. and then, then a couple yeah. days later, I'm at this South Beach food and wine thing. I know, very bougie weekend for the Cody I was household. shocked by that because you don't post a lot. You went from posting New York City to then food and wine stuff. I know. Wow. Just a, he really loves sideways. He's a, really taking this personally. A bougie yeah. weekend. My wife loves wine, so I had bought it for Christmas for her. Okay. Like, uh, so, but. Some guy, I'm talking to some guy about New York Chinese food. He goes, was it Wohop? I'm like, yes, it was Wohop. Like of all the places there, apparently right. I picked one that this guy from Jersey who I met at South Beach Food and Wine was like, oh yeah, that's that's the spot. I was like, I got lucky. I picked the right spot. But uh, it was so good. And then we went to John's on Bleakers, the best pizza I've oh, had. Oh, John's pizza is great. That's very famous. Yep. I mean, I mean, I it was John's all pizza. in one day. I shit my brains out on the plane on the way home, <laughs> if you really must know. But uh, <laughs> it was a great day of food, great day with the family. We saw Hamilton. My daughter loved it. Like, it was just everything. Your daughter's perfect. only, she's in kindergarten. She's five, six. Yeah. And she sat through it. She knows, like, the whole first act by heart, basically. Second Smart art, kid. second art, drone, second act, like, you know, drones on a little bit. But yeah. uh, it was just a perfect trip with the family and great weather and great food. And it was just great. I like that you also dig the weather because I'm with you. I don't like hot and humid. I mean, I, no. I don't mind a little 40 degrees, bundle up a little bit. As it's long nice, as you nice. got the right clothes on. As long as Correct. you got the if right the sun's jacket. out. Yeah. It's... Um, Hamilton. I, I'm shocked that your daughter actually was able to hang in the entire time. There's no chance my kids would be able to. Did it match? First time seeing it, I'm assuming. Match expectations, exceed expectations, or you felt it a little bit overrated? My brother's the only guy, by the way, who I was like, he was like, eh. Everyone else was like, dude, that's incredible. My brother was like, eh, it was all right. I he wasn't the, crazy about it. I thought the first act was like a banging, as good as Broadway can be. I thought the second act, you know, you know, maybe I'd gone into the drinks throughout the day, like good twenty dollars drinks, yeah. Like my, you know, my kids getting a little antsy. Like by the second yeah. act, I'm kind of like, all right, enough. I don't need the whole slow scene about the like, you know, the cheating. A lot of che like, you yeah. know what I mean. The second act is just infidelity, I, big deal. Yeah. But overall, great. Like I would say, okay. overall, definitely, it was just me getting tired, you know, because I'm an old person at this point. But I got you. But it was. Worth the hype. It sounds yes. like it matched expectations. Oh, you walk in and this, it's a small room and the stage. You're like, oh my god, and you're seeing it in person. Like, because we're we're Hamilton fans. I've watched it a dozen times on my on Disney Plus. So like, oh, I wow. so you just guys seeing in. it up close. My daughter was like singing. We were like jamming the whole first act. It was great. Yeah, the, the music's incredible. I, I remember buying like the double CD. Like, so I saw it a few years ago, and I still had a CD player in my car. I'm like, oh, this CD is incredible. I mean, the room where it happens, you could play that all day. Oh. Um, and I remember at the time I was still at ESPN, Greenberg, Greeny afterwards was like, ah, because you didn't see it with Lynn. And I go, why? He goes, you didn't see it with Lynn, Lynn Manuel Miranda. I go, no, but I saw it. He goes, but it's not the original cast. I go, oh, dude. There is like, part I'm sure. Of, there is part yeah. of me, like, I have to, you have to get used to the new cast because I'm so used to right. seeing that cast. So like, there is like yeah. a little bit of an adjustment, but most of it's great yeah. casting. Like, I don't, I'm not, there, there was not one where I was like, they were bad, but it was just, yes. it's just an, it's a bit of an adjustment. If, yeah. The only time I felt yeah. on Back to the Future when we went, we saw the backup for Dr. Emmett Brown. And Ugh. I was telling my friends after Mitch, and he was like, no, he goes, the real guy's unbelievable. He goes, got, I don't know about, yeah. I don't know who the backup was. He goes, maybe he was okay. I go, I, again, I can't believe how much I paid for that freaking thing. It was very overpriced and overrated, and I wasn't crazy about it. I love Back to the Future, as you know. But I'm like, I got to stand in for Doc. He's like, yeah. Did they announce that? Like, how does that go? Because, like, I would just, just be like, don't tell show me. me. Don't no, tell no, me it's you the backup. You don't find out till the day of. Then in the program, it just says the role of Doc. We play by blah blah. blah. I go, oh my god, I got the understudy. I'm like, oh. uh, I would just be like, don't tell me. 
Like I know, I know the film nerd, like like the uh, the the Broadway the nerd, buffs yeah. are gonna be like they're gonna notice, but most people don't even notice. Actually, a good point. If you didn't, because now I'm already <laughs> thinking this guy's gonna stink. He's not the main guy. Yeah, and I know what it's like being a backup. I filled in on Mike. Mike, mm-hmm. I filled in with Rosillo. I know the mm-hmm. pressure that the I filled in on Oberman. You're like, oh, he's, he's people not the real wake guy. up at yeah. six a.m. They're like, oh, let's yeah. watch Mike and Mike. Oh, Adnan's here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I try to support the underside. I try to support. I, I've been a backup quarterback most of my life, mm-hmm. but this guy wasn't nearly as strong. Maybe mm-hmm. others were. Anyways, I'm glad you enjoyed New York. I'm glad it was a great time. SAG Awards took place on Saturday, which a little come see, come saw. Like, I, I mean, um, by the way, Netflix, odd to be able to watch it on Netflix. First time streaming, 30th anniversary of SAG. I'm not crazy about streaming for the same reason when you and I are watching Thursday Night Football. Like, I, I commercial break, I like to flip around. When you're streaming, you can't flip around. And to their credit, there was no commercial breaks. I'm like, okay. So I felt no reason to flip around. But the production was way too bloated. Normally, mm. the SAGs is two hours. It's on TNT with commercials. What's that, an hour 30 of content? This was like 210, 215. I go, oh, my God. And the commercials, but what should have been the commercial, the guy would win. They had a backstage guy doing interviews. Wasn't great. I'm gonna be it honest. Sounds I, I would, like it sounds like it'd be a lot better than with commercials. Like it sounds yeah. right up your alley. Interviews backstage, no commercials, but yet it's it felt bloated. It, That's interesting. Yeah, it felt a little bloated. Because the thing is, you're not getting nearly as many awards. Like the SAGs is essentially four awards for the movies: actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, and then limited series. Okay, my man Jeremy Allen White gonna win. Definitely crushing some SIGs. Okay, he crushed. And then you got the <laughs> Emmys, which again is pretty predictable where those are gonna go. So I'm like, you know what? It wasn't. There's there's just not as many awards. If if it was the same amount of awards, like the Oscars is like twenty. Four categories. So three hours, you do the math, you go, okay, eight categories an hour. This was like maybe 12 categories, two plus hours. Like the math just doesn't work. It was Man, way too long. It'd be but, a great, it'd be a great headline for like an article about Alan White, Jeremy yeah. Allen White, Sigs and Sags. <laughs> yes. That's the title for this week's podcast. I love it. Sigs and Sags. That's perfect. Rather than Zigs and Zags, Sigs and Sags. Uh, I'm thrilled that he won. Love that guy. He looked great too. White suit. He was he awesome. Is. He is attractive. He's definitely a cool dude. Um, as far as the, the SAGs are concerned, so generally speaking, it's a huge predictor when it comes to the Academy Awards. It's not perfect, to be clear. Just because you win the SAG doesn't mean you're going to win the Oscar. I'll give you a couple of examples when it hasn't happened. But generally speaking, if you win the SAG, you're pretty good. Now, uh, Regina King won for, uh, she did not, wasn't even nominated for the SAG and then won the Oscar for a Bill Street Could Talk. Think about that. Wasn't even nominated. Marsha Gay Harden wasn't even nominated for the SAG and then won the Oscar. So it does happen. And most famously recently, Chadwick Bozeman won the Best Actor posthumously for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and then shockingly, Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor for The Father. Having said that, it's a pretty good predictor. Ugh. It may not go four for four, but it's generally three for four. <sighs> Our so boy. what's absolutely in the <sighs> bank, Dave I and Joy Randolph, supporting actress, she's going to win the Oscar. She's won everything else so far. Who's going to win supporting actor? Robbie Downey Jr. He's won everything so far. Another great speech, by the way. Gives a list of all the actors he worked with and then gives a lot of love to his wife, which is very sweet. Also a good Chris Nolan impression, which is part of his speech, which I enjoyed. So those two are locks. So of the other two, now this is where things get fascinating. Actress, everyone's thinking it's Emma Stone. Her and Lily Gladstone both won Golden Globes. Emma Stone wins a Critics' Choice Award and she won the BAFTA. Lily Gladstone wasn't even nominated for the BAFTA. You go, okay, it's going to be Emma Stone. Lily wins the SAG. Great moment, by the way. You know the cameras are on you. The person cheering the loudest, Emma Stone. Seemed genuine. Now, she's an actress. We can be you know, skeptical. But right away, boom, big applause. She was so happy. Lily Gladstone looked shocked. She was like, uh, uh like I thought Emma was going to win. Definitely surprised. Goes up there, nice speech. Again, speaks in her native tongue. Doesn't mention Marty, which was disappointing. Did not mention De Niro. But spoke about native heritage, her background, being Leo, an actress. Leo. Nice speech. Didn't mention Leo. No, didn't mention the wow. She just went, went right to native language and then spoke about her journey, her life, being among actors. Great. But then actor, this was the killer. PG needed this one because Giamatti wins the Golden Globe, as does Killian Murphy. Critics' Choice Awards, Giamatti wins. He moves ahead. 
Killian Murphy wins the BAFTA award. Now they're tied. And even if Giamatti had won the SAG, I still wouldn't have been 100% sure he's going to win the Oscar because I'm like, Oppenheimer is a behemoth. This movie's going to win at least eight Oscars, which will be the most in Slumdog Millionaire. But if Giamatti had won, I would have been feeling pretty good. Instead, he loses. Again, cameras on him, so right away he was smart, leads the applause. Jeffrey Rutt looks mildly annoyed, like, eh, he didn't really get this. Like, eh. Bradley Cooper, okay. Clay Murphy didn't look shocked. Like, Lee Glass kind of like, okay, I did win. It's either going to be me or Giamatti, so I guess I won this one. What I didn't like is that Murphy did not thank Giamatti in his speech. Mm. Most of these guys, they just kind of went right to the... you got to start with the first words is, congrats, my other nominees. I know you don't like this. We discussed this last year. You're like, nah, it's kind of pandering. I go, no, that's the first thing. you got to say, hey, thanks to the nominees. You guys were awesome. It's a pleasure to be among your company. Then you go in to thank my agent, my manager, my family, the entire cast and crew. And then you do something personal. Giamatti thanked teachers in one speech. Pay the teachers. Love it, our show. I would appreciate that. <laughs> he mentioned, uh, mentioned his dad in one part, so... Killian Murphy, listen, amazing blue eyes, great speech, but that hurt. As a Giamatti lover, he's facing an uphill battle now to win that Academy You got Award. me all in. I'm at the food and wine checking my phone on Saturday night, and I'm like, oh, Adnan's going to be so pissed. Yeah, it was definitely. I, I'm trying to do like the come see. I'm like, hey, well, Lily won. Like, we have a genuine race now for best actress. Like, she might win best actress of Killers of the Flower Moon, but Giamatti's my guy. I think he I mean, still got it. But the other things you just referenced, they weren't nominated for the SAG. You know what I mean? Those people came out of left right. field. It's rare that uh, the Hopkins person... was nominated for the SAG, okay. didn't win, then won the Oscar. Okay, okay, okay. So I the thought... other two were nominated for actors, didn't didn't even get nominated, and then they won the Oscar. Okay, so that but, the, but the it, Hopkins like, is we got that as a precedent. But what what hurts is that the actors branch is the biggest part of the Academy. Like there's 7,500 members of the Academy. The biggest branch is the actors. Yeah. So generally, you feel like they're the ones that love. Them. Although one might argue, Giamatti's beloved by all people. So like the crews might love him, right? Like the the tech guys all love him. So no, I'll vote for that guy. I He's bet a good he crushes dude. the non. Actor, the non actors, he might yeah. actually have the edge of it. Killy Murphy just hasn't worked as much as he has. Jimmy has been in like 50 movies, Man. he's been working for 25 years. By the way, I watched Private Parts last night, we're gonna do it next week. It's available on Amazon oh, Prime yes. for free. So, everyone, you got one week to go watch Private Parts and Amazon Prime. First time I'd watch it in 27 years, we'll give a formal review next it's, week. It's just not that easy to make a connection on a plane with someone. Like the conversation that Stern in this, like the whole movie is based off Stern having a conversation yeah. on a plane. It's Carol like, Walt. no, nobody talks that long on the, on the plane. Yeah, one thing I'll say, we'll, we'll do the full I know, review next sorry, week. I, I was, was shocked, just... <laughs> I, but I was shocked uh, how long it took to get to Giamatti. Like, I'm like waiting, I'm waiting. He doesn't show up. To, the movie is an hour 45. He doesn't show up till the hour nine mark. I'm like, oh my God, like how much do I have to wait here to get to Giamatti? Yeah, that's so surprising. he's actually in the movie for like 30 minutes, <laughs> tops. But <laughs> he's awesome and we'll, uh, we'll discuss it in detail next week. All right, as far as the movies this week, Dune 2. Went to the Steak Peak last week. It was absolutely incredible. Just that experience. I mean, it was, I felt so grateful and so lucky to be in the Warner Brothers screening room, able to watch it. Now, the first Dune I saw, but I'll be honest, I did not see it on the big screen. And I do think you do lose a little bit of that luster. Like the yeah, movies Dune. like this have got to be, right? And I, I saw Dune and I felt doomed after seeing it on HBO originally at home. I, not even seeing it just at home, Chris. I didn't even see it like in one viewing. Like, I, I, somebody the other day said to me, oh, I love Killers of the Flower Moon. I saw it over four days. I go, what? Like, you got to watch that movie in one go. Like, I get it if you're like, I was late at night. I finished it the next day. But, like, I, I would never purposely think, like, a three-hour film. Like, I'll just I'll just watch it for four days. I'm like, no. I remember with Dune, I was annoyed. Stuff kept happening, so I was in and out. And I'm like, you know what? I didn't give that movie a fair shake because I didn't see it in one sitting, and I saw it at home. So I went into Dune 2 this time. I go, listen, the phone is off. I'm going to get chastised if the phone is on. Anyways, because I'm with a bunch of critics, so I was still to turn it off. Let me tell you something. This is an absolute banger. I mean, this is just a fantastic movie. I did not read the Dune book. 
I was talking to Ben Lyons after I got out of the screening. I asked him if he read it. He goes, no, I like sports, which I laughed at. <laughs> Taking a little shot at the geeks out there who love Dune. But listen, <laughs> if, if you're into Dune, maybe as a kid, you grew up, you're 16 years old, reading a 900-page book. Props to you, because you're going to know more about this world than I do. I have not read the book. I don't think about it. But what I can tell you is this. Paul Atreides is back. He unites with Chani and the Freeman while seeking revenge against the conspirators who destroyed his family. It is directed by noted Canadian Denis Villeneuve and also co-written by Denis Villeneuve alongside John Spates and Frank Herbert. And again, I, I just can't say enough how much you got to see on the big screen. That's the biggest thing that stood out to me was the sound. The quality of the sound is amazing. The cinematography is gorgeous. I mean, the whole thing takes place, virtually the entire movie takes place in the sand. So it felt like watching, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, but like a science fiction movie and just the way that it's shot in the sand dunes. I mean, the most glorious action sequences, and again, I'm not going to say too much about this, is where Paul is proving that he can overcome the sandstorm. So he's got to use like these just couple of grips here. And he just literally is like fighting the force. I swear to God, you can like feel the G-force against him. And you can see the reactions of Javier Bardem, everyone else around him knowing, oh my God, this guy's this messianic figure who can somehow overcome these crazy sand dunes. The whole cast is great. Chalamet's obviously the next big thing. He's a terrific actor. Worked with Marty again, the Chanel ad, so I obviously like him. Zendaya is very good. She plays a love interest. Bardem, I mentioned, Academy Award winner. Josh Brolin, who I forgot, he's in the movie. And I, I got to tell you, I didn't even realize Austin Butler was in the movie until I was watching it. Afterwards, like, I checked the credits. I go, wait, Elvis is in the movie? That's right. Austin Butler, Florence Pugh makes a cameo, Dave Bautista, Jacked Up, and Christopher Walken. I mean, the fact Christopher Walken is still around making movies, as is Stellan Skarsgård and Charlotte Rampling. I mean, this is a very eclectic No cast. way. Because yeah, think about it. You're getting the young people, Chalamet and Zendaya, right? Euphoria, and obviously the young girls, they all love Chalamet. You're getting the critics like me who like Bardem and, and Brolin, you know, veteran character actors. But they're also getting Christopher Walken, along with your impression, Skarsgård, Rampling. I mean, it's it's a very eclectic cast. It's a good and it's movie. Just, no, it's yeah, yeah, Damn, I lost it. Yeah, it, I will say, I wouldn't say he was the strength of the film. Like, when, when he was there, like, it's just so much of Christopher Walken being Christopher Walken. But... The At the same time, I'm just happy he's still working, still around, and it's a terrific film. So I don't want to say too much about it. Dune 2, three and a half Maple Leafs. I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. It's long, as expected, two hours and 40 minutes, but it really does provide a lot of genuine action and thrills. And again, I think if you love the book, you will hopefully love the movie. It's getting a lot of buzz right now. Johnny Oleksinski of the New York Post. Our blockbuster drought is over thanks to a brilliant sequel set on a sweltering desert planet. And Lovia Giarchi of Hollywood Reporter, by the way, it's 97% Rotten Tomatoes. Well, a few criticisms of the film, plagued by nagging shallowness when it comes to portraying the Freeman. The film has difficulty fully embracing the nuance of Herbert's anti-imperial and ecologically dystopian text. That sounds like somebody who read the book and is taking it a little bit personal. It, it was honestly the only negative one I could find. I was like, I don't even know what it means. <laughs> Amen. 97% right now, Rotten Tomatoes Dune 2. That's the one exception out there, the one outlier. Um, by the way, I did want to mention quickly about Kingsley Benadir. We had him on a couple weeks ago here on Cinephile. Great guy. was a good guest. One Love has been an absolute smash. I, I checked its opening weekend. It was expected to make about $35 million. A you know, guy like Bob Marley, obviously musical icon, transcendent. It's going to do good business. Opening weekend was $47 million. Now, Part of that, I think, is just a dearth of other quality. Now that Dune 2 is coming, that's going to be massive at the box office. But February is a pretty ugly month as far as movies. Drive-Away Dolls came out, which Ethan Cohn is responsible for. Original title, by the way, it's a lesbian road comedy. It was supposed to be Drive-Away Dykes. And they said, no, we don't want to make it the title. Like, okay, well, Drive-Away Dolls it is. But Ethan Cohn was really pushing for it. Of course, one half of the Cohn brothers. But it's been a pretty bleak month. Mostly February is people catching up on Oscar movies 
or I don't know, watching the NBA All-Star, even finding something else to do. There's not a lot of new releases in February. So the fact that One Love opened at $47 million, that's massive if you're a Bob Marley fan, massive for black cinema. And again, if you love the movie, go back and listen, most importantly, to Kingsley Benadir, who is a great guest here in Cinephile. Have the Coens broken up? They have. That's a great question. Glad you mentioned. <laughs> so they made you know infinite number of movies together, and then eventually decided to go separate ways. So Joel Cohen makes The Tragedy of Macbeth, black and white film, austere, serious, Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand, his real-life wife. Fantastic. I really enjoyed it. It was nominated, I believe, the Oscars for cinematography and not much else, maybe production design. Ethan Cohen goes, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. He has an open relationship with his wife, who's a lesbian. It works for them. So he's going to make a movie called Drive Away Dolls, uh, which has... The Indian girl from Blockers. Can't remember her name offhand. Geraldine Visnawathan, I believe. You'll double check her name. She was great, obviously, in that movie. And so he wants to make, as he said, a lesbian road comedy. He goes, this is an underserved community. I know that because of my wife. We want to do something different. I believe it's gotten good reviews. Not great, but they say it's definitely wacky, definitely different, and it's got a lot of fun. So being a Coen Brothers fan, hopefully I will check out at some point. Driveaway Dolls. Oh, the original title should have been Driveaway Dykes. <laughs> at least that's what Ethan Coen did want. Um, we'll get to our special guest in just a second, Chris Castle. But I did want to mention The Third Man. And I mentioned a follow-up, a postscript here to the much-valued Costas Mankiewicz dinner, which I enjoyed. Bob texted me yesterday, 4.50 while I was doing hockey. Of course, Chris Chelios had his jersey retired by the Chicago Blackhawks. I was supposed to be off. They go, no, you got to work it. Because of the fact, I look like Chris Chelios. For those that don't know the story, 2016, I'm coming back from calling a game with our friend Eduardo Perez. Eddie flying back to Florida. I was flying back to Connecticut. Detroit Airport. Reading a Tiger Woods bio by Armin Katayan with a with a Canada hat on, which I think is notable because you know one thing about Chris Chelios, that guy hates Canada. I worked with him later on when he found out. I'm like, don't mention. Someone goes, oh, by the way, Adrian's Canadian. I go, no. his whole life he's faced Canadians, and not to be bragging, but generally Canada won. So he's the face of USA hockey. And he's like, God, another Canadian. He's like, oh, let me guess, you could have played hockey, but you hurt your shoulder back in junior. Like right away, I'm like, oh, don't, don't mention I'm Canadian. So the fact that I'm wearing a Canada hat, if you know anything about Chris Chelios, right. this guy loves USA. For some reason, Chris Chelios bringing a Canada happened. No, these two guys walked up to me, middle age, 40s, and go, excuse me, Mr. Chelios, can we get a picture? Now, without missing a beat, I'm like, nope, I'm going to play along. I'm like, sure, of course, guys. Get a picture. <laughs> and I said, you guys big uh, Blackhawks fans? Because I pictured him as a Blackhawk, where his jersey was retired, but I was in Detroit. I should have realized. And they go, no, I go Red Wings, of course. I had a great few years here with the Red Wings. Like, thanks, thanks. And the one guy goes, hey, thanks so much, Mr. Chelios. Like, you got it, man. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for watching. And guys, the guy goes, Blackhawk fans is a funny question. Yeah, you guys Blackhawk fans? That's what I think. Say, no. <laughs> And then the guy goes, no, no, Detroit. Like, oh, of course, Red Wings. Yeah, I know. We win some cups here. And he goes, hey, this pe this picture is definitely going up on the mantelpiece. And as Mike Golick said, when I told that story on Mike and Mike, yeah. he goes, could you imagine the guy who walked in and goes, why well, do you have a picture of that damn work yeah. up above your mantelpiece? <laughs> Anyways, so good. Chelios jersey retired yesterday. So I was in the midst of that. That's why they scheduled me. They're going to do, we have to have you on set because it's Chelios. Like, okay. Costas texted, when you have a chance, can you shoot me a Mankiewicz contact? I immediately did the share contact, and Bob wrote back, thanks. I gave him a thumbs up. I didn't want to continue the conversation because, quite frankly, I was busy watching Chelios, and Bob didn't have anything else to do, so I helped him out. I'm a, I'm a good middler. I helped him out. And if you'll recall, at the end of the dinner, I said something like, hey, do you want Ben's number? He's like, well, you know, whatever. We'll, we'll figure it out. So that does follow up that Bob is genuinely into Ben Manquitz, and it's good news for Ben. By the way, Bob created some stirs this weekend, which is another reason I didn't want to bother him because I'm like, well, he's probably busy with this. The Trump stuff? Yeah, so I don't I don't watch about CNN. I don't watch much political stuff to be honest. And apparently, just just railed against. Trump. I just saw the clip in the headline, like the quote. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get it wrong, but he he definitely 
he definitely took some shots here at the Trump folks. So I'm like, all right, maybe Bob's dealing with that right now. I'm just curious. I wanted to, I wanted to be continue to be a middler, but it wasn't my business. When he said what's made, I'm like, what is it you want to talk to him about? Like almost like as if I would still be involved in the conversation, but I'm assuming it's still movie related. But yeah, he he branded Trump supporters as a toxic cult. So he definitely got after it there with Smirconch and also called him the most disgraceful figure in history. My man Bob Cost is still getting some headlines. Notcher's going to be saying that when it comes to MLB Network content. When it comes to Ben Mankiewicz, as if Cinephile needed more competition, my dear friend Matt Baker, who is an outstanding researcher at MLB Network, he's so good. He's so good to the job. We're so lucky to have him. He's also a huge movie guy and the biggest Seinfeld fan you'll ever meet. He could quote every Seinfeld episode. He texts me and goes, hey, have you heard Mankiewicz's pod? Your boy Alexander Payne is on. I'm like, what? A, I love Alexander Payne, of course, who directed The Holdovers. But more importantly, Mank has a podcast, which he did not drop over that dinner. So I listened to it. There's one great line when Payne says, he was talking about Will Forte in Nebraska. And he goes, why'd you cast him? And Payne goes, I, I would rather have a comedian play a dramatic role than a dramatic actor play a dramatic role. And he's like, really? He's like, yeah. Because he goes, a dramatic actor can't do comedy, but a comedian can do a dramatic role. And then he said, he goes, why did you cast Will Forte? Like, did you watch SNL? And Payne made a funny point. He goes, I mainly watch old movies. I don't watch like current movies. So I don't know a lot of current people. The cast and directors kind of come to me and say, what do you think of this guy? So I didn't, you know, I'm not watching Saturday Night Live, but they recommended him to me. What I liked about him was his face in repose defaults to damage. And this is a great point by Ben. So often in life, interviewers don't even paying attention to what the guy says. They just make that kind of a comment move on. I love that Ben goes, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and then Payne explained, he goes, like he, he goes, Will Forte looks damaged. Like He looks like a guy who's haunted his issues. He's not like calm and confident at all times. Like, yeah. So I texted Mank. I'm like, hey, really good follow-up question. Congrats on the pod. He also gave my man Robert Mitchum some love at the end because Payne said how much he loves Robert Mitchum, which Mankiewicz and I talked about over dinner how much I love Mitchum. He goes, yeah, I love the friends of Eddie Coyle and, of course, out of the past. I texted Mank the first text Saturday, 116. Didn't respond. Second text, I responded four hours later. Hey, way to give Mitchum some love. No response. So the third text, this is the last one in Texas, freaking guy. He's yesterday, I go, I just gave your contact to Info to Costas. So this one, he definitely responded to. <laughs> so he said, thanks so much for the kind words about the podcast. Then he put some personal stuff I'm not going to read. Uh, thanks for setting up the dinner. It was such a highlight for me. You're a mensch. Just to watch a bunch of the Dodgers A's. He's a big A's guy, blah, blah, blah. Went into the he made, so, dude, make good long text after the, the couple. Correct. Yeah, yeah, he went like long. He was like, I, I, dude, I gave you props once. I gave you props a second time. Now I'm telling you that I gave you costs. Like, Here's costs the reason why I didn't respond to you, the personal stuff. Like, Great. You yeah. explain the reason, which is a good reason. And by the way, I'm locked into Dodgers A's right now. I'm like, all right, spring training baseball. We're back, baby. But definitely check out Meg's podcast. Uh, as if, like I said, Cinefile needed the competition, but it's great. He's obviously very talented and he's really great at his job. And Alexander Payne was a fun listen. Here's what you're going to find interesting. Payne is a great writer. And so at one point, Meg was like, you know, you make these movies, but like, wouldn't it be nice to sell out? And he laughed. He goes, yeah, of course. You want to give me $8 million? I'll go write some stuff. I don't care. Like whatever. He goes like <clears throat> with Sideways, he goes, we had, Clooney was interested, not the Giamatti role, the Thomas Hayden Church role. And I told him no. And they said, why? He goes, He's this like incredibly handsome, rich, talented actor. No one's going to buy him as this washed up voice actor. Yeah. Like, there's just no way. Like the movie's over. Because so Thomas Hayden Church is perfect. He was on Wings. He was on a sitcom years ago. Like he's perfect as this guy. And for Giamatti's role, he goes, I can't remember. There, there's somebody famous that they were pushing me. And I said, no, it's got to be Paul Giamatti. Because I just like, he goes, we, we had, I'm not kidding. He goes, 50 people read for that role. And Giamatti came in and he had just been given the sides like 20 minutes earlier. And he came in and he nailed it. And I go, well, that's the guy. Like he figured it because he goes, you start to realize, but maybe I just didn't write it very well. Maybe maybe the script sucks because no one's saying it the way that I pictured it. Like maybe I just messed it up. And because Giamatti came in, nailed it. And I go, no, no, that's the guy. He figured it out. 
and we can't cash George Clooney. And they're like, you can get a lot more money if you get George Clooney. He's like, we're not going to cash George Clooney. And he goes, I'll make up a smaller budget. Now, the descendants, I did cash George Clooney because they go, that's the good role for him. He can play a widower, the father, daughter, ink stuff. He goes, the crew said to me, that the studio head at the time said, he goes, we got two guys interested that can do it, Tom Hanks or George Clooney. And I said, I love Tom Hanks. He's great. But I, I've seen Tom Hanks cry before. I've never seen George Clooney cry before on screen. And this kind of like a father-daughter thing. I think he's the right choice. And he was right. Descendants made like over $120 million was a huge hit. So Mankwitz then says, all right, but as far as like doing some script rates, he goes, I don't know if this is, and I always love when an interviewer does this. I'm not sure if this is right. Cause you're kind of hedging going, I, I don't want to piss you off. I don't know if this is right. He goes, I don't know if this is right, but apparently you worked on Meet the Parents. And he's like, oh yeah. He goes, me and my partner, Jim Taylor, were asked to rewrite the script. He goes, we wrote at least a third of it. And I was astonished by it. He goes, particularly, he goes, the speech that De Niro gives to his mother, he goes, that word for word is my speech. And good editing by Mankwitz and his editing people. They, they include the speech in there, which was great. He then followed up. He also worked in Jurassic Park 3 because he said we were having problems with the scripts. So they called me and I did it. And perhaps most shockingly, Alexander Payne worked on Pokemon, the movie. <laughs> so it, it, it's just another reminder. These guys might make these art house movies, these independent movies, but... Hey, I, I'm ready to work. And he goes, when it comes to big movies like that, I'm happy to do it. He also recommends some great Coruscant films that he loved, but I never, th I'm going to watch Meet the Parents again now. Alexander Payne, his uh, thumbprints all over it. Are you talking about like Robert De Niro, where he's like, love you, mom? Like, like, yeah, yeah, that's the speech. Yeah, and they yeah, actually yeah. play word for word. And they, there's one fun, like a hysterical line because Ben actually plays it, which is really good. But there's one line that's amazing. But yeah, he does the whole thing to his mom. Hmm. That word for word is Alexander Payne. I go, that's pretty cool. Uh, one more. Because as I sit over that dinner, at one point we were talking old movies. And I said to Bob, how about the third man? He goes, yeah, I like it. I don't love it. I go, are you kidding? It's one of the greatest movies of all time. And I looked at Manquist. I go, third man. He's like, oh, of course, it's awesome. So I rewatched it again. It was on, uh, it was on TCM, but I actually have the DVD. The story, in case you've never seen it, The Third Man. Pulp novelist Holly Martins travels to shadowy post-war Vienna, only to find himself investing in the mysterious death of an old friend, Harry Lyme. This is one of the biggest reasons why people ask me, why the hell do you still have a DVD player? Because when I pop in The Third Man, not only do I get to watch the movie, but they've got featurettes about the making of the film, and most importantly, director commentary in this case, or other director commentary. So Steven Soderbergh, the very famous Oscar-winning director, Traffic, Out of Sight, Out of Sight, one of Ben Mankwitz's favorite movies. He does the director commentary along with Tony Gilroy. Gilroy's the guy who did the Bourne Identity and all those Bourne movies. So it's really cool listening to two directors, two writer-directors talk about this film, which they obviously love, and their knowledge about it. So some scenes, Soderbergh's like, well, yeah, I read this book about the third man. This scene, what they're doing here is this. And lighting was like this. But then they also talk about their own films. Like Gilroy says, oh, with the Bourne movies, you know, I never like shooting at night. Soderbergh's like, oh, I love shooting at night. He's like, are you kidding? He's like, it's great. He's like, there's less variables. I can just clear things out. Yeah, the crew's a little tired. We're shooting 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. But like, there, there's less going on as far as the lighting is concerned. It's better. So it's fascinating listening to the commentary of it. But as far as the movie itself, it's absolutely brilliant. The Baptist just took place, the British Academy Awards. And the third man for me is the greatest British movie ever made. And it's on many lists, in fact, the greatest British film ever made. Harold Reid was on a heater at the time. He'd been a couple of really good movies and then made The Third Man. Graham Greene is the author, incredible British writer. If you've ever read his novels, you know what a great writer he is, all but The Whiskey Priest and End of the Affair, one of my all-time favorite movies. He wrote it along with Orson Welles and Alexander Korda. My boy, Scott Rogowski, Rags, it's apparently right now available on Criterion. Rags texted me a month ago. He's dude, I just watched The Third Man. I go, I know, it's, it's genius. And what's genius about it is it's a fairly straightforward story. It's a guy who thinks he's got a job. He's going to see his old buddy. He gets to Vienna, finds out his buddy's dead. And rather than just go home right away, he decides to investigate what exactly happened to his friend. And once he finds out what happened to him and what he's been up to, well, maybe he should be dead. 
Let's start with Joseph Cotton, who plays Holly Martins. As they say in the commentary, it's perfect casting because he just looks like a blank slate. There's certain actors like that who can appear naive and searching of the truth, and Joseph Cotton has that. Very likable guy from Virginia. Uh, the love interest in the movie is also very good as well. Her name is Alita Valley. She plays Anna Schmidt because you can clearly tell, even though Cotton is smitten with her as Holly Martins, he's got no chance. Like she is so out of his depth because she's in love with Harry Lyme, his old friend. And Harry Lyme is played by who else? but one of the all-time greats in Orson Welles. There's a story likely apocryphal that Orson Welles directed his own scenes. It's actually not true, as they said, it's discredited, although he claims to have written at least some part of his dialogue. Peter Bogdanovich, again, famed filmmaker, one of Mankiewicz's favorites from TCM, he has an introduction to the film on the Criterion DVD in which he says, well, so this is such a great part because the whole movie they keep saying, who's the third man, who's the third man, who's the third man? And he goes, they're building up to me. So the movie is like an hour 50, and I don't show up till the hour and 10 mark. Orson Welles is maybe in 12 minutes in this movie, and it's an absolute scene stealer because he's so brilliant in the film. And that scene where Holly Martins is trying to figure out exactly what his old friend has been up to, and he's talking to you know, the woman who's clearly still in love with him and has no interest in him. At one point, he calls him Harry rather than Holly. He goes up and it's beautifully shot with these shadows. It's all the whole film's in black when of course, 1949. And when you see Orson Welles come out of the shadows, give that that famous impish grin. It is such a great movie magic moment. Because the light comes, little grin, the light goes down, cat, you know, meows, and then you see this great shot, this guy running. On the documentary, they show the first assistant director because we couldn't get Wells to run. He was tough to track down. So he's actually the guy running. He didn't look like Orson Wells. So he goes, I almost had like shoulder pads and I had to wear this big jacket. I had to run down the I had to run down the alley and we had to shoot it a few times to make it look like it was Orson Wells running. But that scene that the cotton and Wells have together. And as Soderbergh says, sometimes a great movie comes down to great actor names. Like Harry Lime is just an all-time great character name. Anyways, Holly ends up seeing Harry and Harry, finds out what's going on. Yep. Harry did not die. He is the third man. Um, and the fact that he's now you know, black marking, stealing penicillin. And, and this is very specific to that time. This is a movie that comes out post-World War, as I mentioned, post-War Vienna. Vienna is its own character in the movie. I don't think it had ever really been featured in a movie like this. If I ever am lucky enough to go to Vienna, I'd love to be able to see, is there stuff about the third man there? And um, Tony Gilroy said, and Soderbergh says as well in the commentary, that when Graham Greene was there researching it, what he noticed about Vienna was the sewers. And that leads up to one of the most famous finales ever, that entire incredible action sequence, which is done in the sewers of Vienna. So that's why a writer sometimes has to go to the place and say, okay, what's unique about this spot? Oh, they have these underground sewers. Well, that's pretty interesting. That could be a great set piece for the film. Anyways, Cotton and uh, Wells, it's a great, great scene together when they go up on the uh, Ferris wheel. And Lyman apparently may have written some of that stuff. Wells did. But the way he's kind of circling Holly. And even Soderbergh says, he goes, listen, as an actor, he's an all-time great director. As an actor, sometimes I find him a little bit excessive. He goes, here, he's so good because he's so subtle. You know, he's basically threatening Holly Martin to one point of saying, I could throw him down there. And when Holly's challenging him, saying, listen, you sold out. You're, you're, you're stealing penicillin from hospitals, which should be given to children. You're selling it on the black market. And he looks down. He goes, look at how much are each of those dots worth? All those people. 10,000, 20,000, 30,000. Like, absolute extreme capitalist. I'm willing to kill people because it means money to me. I don't know them. They're just strangers in a crowd. And he gets off and then gives a really famous speech in which he says, you know, well, what has democracy given us? You know, 500 years in Switzerland, the cuckoo clock. Bye, Harry. And he leaves. Again, that leads to that incredible ending, which is shot in the stewards. It's like 12 minutes long. It's something like, you know, Brian De Palma would appreciate having an entire action sequence like that. You can't talk about the third man without talking about the zither score 
which I couldn't even describe to you, Chris. You'll have to Google after just zither, Z-I-T-H-E-R. Originally, the thought was the zither score would be some music at one point in the movie. Instead, they had the idea, Alexander Korda, I think, said, why don't you use it for the whole film? You can't picture the third one without that music. There's never been a film featuring a zither score like this, and it's so perfect for the film because it's just, it's off kilter. Carol Reed's direction, speaking of off kilter, a lot of tilted angles in the movie. He was very specific in this. Most directors don't do it. Soderbergh himself says, I wouldn't do it because you have to be careful when you do it. It has to be a motivated move, right? You go back to film school, they tell you every camera move has to be motivated. But because this movie is a little bit off kilter, everything's a little bit obscure, even a shot of two guys together, it's always just a little bit tilted. The camera's a little bit off center, looks a little bit strange, and it's a very disorienting feeling and a very effective feeling. That gets us to the very, very famous ending. Of course, Harry Lyme puts his, his fingers through the sewer trying to get out, realizes he's trapped. Holly Martins has him. Apparently, by the way, that's Carol Reed's his fingers. Not sure if that's true or not. Those fingers going through the sewer. Very famous shot. Holly kills him. And the last scene there, it's amazing. You know, Holly's going to go catch his flight to go back home. He's being driven, driven away. Even the fact that he decides to go back, by the way, and, and help uh, you know, the police guys, Trevor Howard, Major Calloway. Calloway Callahan, by the way, is a good bit. I'm British, not Irish. But when Callaway, you know, that's the way he gets to Holly Martin's conscience. The fact he shows him what's happening in these hospitals, the way these kids are being harmed because of what Harry Lyme is doing still in the penicillin. That's a really good scene as a motivating factor for Holly deciding to turn on his longtime friend. That gets us the final last shot. Carol Reed apparently was very nervous about it. That last shot, it's maybe 20 seconds. Uh, you see Joseph Cotton getting out of the car as he waits for Alita Valley to walk towards him. Major Callie pulls away the shot, cuts away to Callie pulling away. And then it's just one minute, one of the greatest endings in movie history, that wonderful, exquisite long shot. And as Soderbergh says in the commentary, he goes, every time I see this movie, I always think something's going to happen. She's going to look at him. She's going to acknowledge him. She's going to say something. And it never happens. She just walks right past him. And it just proves once again, you may be the hero, but you don't get the girl. It's a great lesson, not only in movies, but also in life. Cotton pulls out a match. As a smoke, tosses the match, and that's it. One of the great movie endings of all time, which, again, Reed was nervous about. If not, it would work. And as Soderbergh and Gilroy point out, it works because that's the last shot. If you're going to do a minute shot, static, long, wide shot, that's got to be the last shot of the movie. And that's why it works. It can't be anything else. And I'll give the final word to Steven Soderbergh, who says on the commentary, there's lots of great movies. You watch them, and they're not as great as everyone says they are. Because this is one of those movies that's a great movie. And it's even better when you actually see it. The Third Man, it's available right now on TCM. I'm sure on Max. I have the DVD on Criterion. Awesome, awesome film. A few reviews here for you. Um, this is the no bigger critic than Roger Ebert, right? Chicago sometimes. Of all the movies I've seen, this one most completely embodies the romance of going to the movies. Ian Freer of Empire Magazine. It is a bleak, hard-nosed crime story that encompasses a ruined continent, sick and cynical from war. The third man finally endures because it offers a simple thing that so many modern films neglect, the power of story. And James Bardinelli real views, for lovers of film noir, The Third Man is unquestionably a must-see, one of the masterpieces of a genre that has contained everything from milestone motion pictures to low-budget pot boilers. Once again, it is The Third Man. Now it's time for our special guest. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Remember the best vacation you've ever taken? Make your next one even better with Get Your Guide. With Get Your Guide, you can book over 100,000 unforgettable experiences in the U.S. and around the world. Want to see the Grand Canyon from a helicopter? They got you. Watching a wrestling match in Mexico City? No problem. Or how about a guided tour of Rome's ancient ruins? Wherever you're going, whatever you're into, book your next travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. To end all war, Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb, outstanding documentary currently available on Peacock as we're less than two weeks away from the Oscars. What better way, rather than just watch Oppenheimer, watch an actual documentary about him. And so, yes, a director named Christopher who made a film about Oppenheimer. It's not Christopher Nolan, even better. It's Christopher Castle yeah. who's joining us right now. Chris, first off, how cool is it the fact you made a movie called Doc, a movie about Oppenheimer, your name is also Chris. Like You must be fooling some people here to thinking you might be Christopher Nolan. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, unfortunately, I don't get confused with him enough, but I'm working. <laughs> on so. Well, let's start with the fact Christopher Nolan is in the movie. I think there's at least seven or eight sound bites that you use from him, and uh, particularly I like this sound bite. We talked to the Trinity Project, you know, obviously the atomic bomb, and they realized it's going to work in Los Alamos. He said, "Never been a moment like that in the history of the world." Yeah. What was it like talking to Chris and and being able to use his sound in your movie? Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, you know, obviously the movie was the genesis of the documentary in a lot of ways, and. Um, he was fully supportive of it. And what was really great was, you know, he said, I don't want to be I mean, as much as his creative um, input would have been welcome. He said, I really want this to stand alone. I don't want it to be seen as a PR piece for the movie. I want you guys to just create, you know, the best documentary you can. And um, so that was really nice to get that license, you know, um, to to go ahead and, and just tell the story we wanted to tell, but also to get his input. So it was really nice to get him to sit down with us and we did it on the universal lot um and he gave us you know a good hour maybe a little more than an hour and i could tell that he was really excited to sit down and kind of talk not academically but just more matter of factly about this story you know i'd done a lot of homework up to that point and so i think he enjoyed the back and forth on oppenheimer's story because you know he, he may not often get that opportunity yeah, it's like playing tennis. You're able to appreciate the fact he can yeah. get the ground strokes back to you as hard as you're hitting it back to him. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. That's why it's such a great companion piece, because having seen Nolan's film twice, then watching your documentary, you're watching to say, okay, what's different about the movie? Maybe there's something off a little bit. Is there something that some information that was left out? But it feels fairly consistent. Like, I think it's a tribute to your documentary and to Nolan's film that there's such an element of veracity to both. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, throughout the process for us, I was asking if I could see a script. And initially we had heard that, yes, I probably would be able to, I would have to fly to LA and sit in a room without my cell phone. And, you know, I could read the script and whatever, because I was curious about, you know, um, particularly I, I know that they, I knew that uh, Louis Straws, who was Robert Downey Jr.'s character, was going to be a really big and important part of the movie. And I wanted to make sure that our documentary was going to do it and treat his story in a way that would kind of jive with what they were doing in the movie. Anyway, I never got to see the script and he was just, it was under lock and key. So it wasn't until I had finished the documentary and I got to go to a private screening of the movie that I was like, wow, you know, it's, uh, I feel like they do complement each other really well, um, yeah. you know, which, which was great and kind of almost accidental. Well, one thing specifically was that in the movie, 
I said, there's no way this actually happened. When Truman calls him, you know, just get that damn crybaby out of here. And then when I see your documentary, no, it's exactly what happened. What, yeah. what, what, he, what specifically happened is that he said, I've got blood on my hands. And Truman took umbrage at the fact that, you know, I'm the one who made the call here. Okay. I'm the one who dropped those bombs. Like, this wasn't you. It was me. It was, it, it took an ego trip. And then basically said, I never want to see that crybaby again. Yeah. Yeah. I think one key common link between the movie and the documentary is um, the book American Prometheus, which is sort of the, I, I guess, the definitive biography of Oppenheimer um, was what Christopher Nolan optioned when he created his screenplay. And we got to right. interview the surviving co-author of that, who was a key part of our documentary, Kai Bird. Um, so yeah, that crybaby cry line, you know, came from Kai in our documentary. Obviously, it was also in his movie uh, or in his book so that it, it made it into the movie. So uh, there was definitely some crossover with the research. The early stuff at Oppenheimer is amazing in your documentary, particularly the fact he's at a summer camp. He doesn't ingratiate himself very well. And so his campmates get revenge on him. He's as one of the talking heads says, he's painted green his entire body, including his genitals. Yeah. I mean, I know we can't extrapolate, but how do you bounce back from having a green scrotum to one day building an atomic bomb? <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe that drove him, you know, pushed him forward to, to you know, to be more ambitious. I don't know. Um, very odd. And what we talk about is his reaction to it. He was just very stoic. You know, he had been this I think my impression is that he was kind of he was really conceited because he was so smart and he was so much smarter than everyone around him um, that, you know, that's probably why he ended up in that position, because he, I think, would sort of put down the kids around him. And he didn't really have great social skills because uh, he had been really kind of isolated as a kid. And so um, the fact that he was stoic in the wake of this, after I'm sure having been such a loudmouth and so obnoxious, was sort of striking, um, you know, and you see sort of the two sides of him as, you know, just being a really introspective on one end and on the other end, you know, just super confident in his in his intelligence. Yeah, I always find it amazing. Like there's people who like I'm listening to Lily Gladys on Mark Maron's podcast and she was voted like most likely to win an Oscar. So like certain people, you can see it. Yeah. And then with him, with Oppenheimer, you know, one scientist goes and saying he couldn't run a hot dog stand. Yeah. So, so to, to your point, it's like on the one hand, he's brilliant, but at the other hand, he's very inept in some ways. Yeah, I think he was seen as kind of an absent minded professor at this point. And, you know, he had been teaching at Berkeley for several years, um, but his head was totally in theoretical physics and he had never had to really run anything. Um, and this was going to be really the biggest you know, company or corporation or organization in the country. It ended up in the Manhattan Project ended up employing 600,000 people. And he didn't run the entire thing, but he ran, you know, kind of the key component of it, the weapons design laboratory. And um, it was a gamble to to bring him in. Um, you know, he wasn't yet the most respected among uh, the physicists in America, but I think he just knew how to he, he really impressed General Groves, um, you know, as yeah. seen in the movie played by Matt Damon um, as somebody who could not only understand the science inside now, but but convey it to the people who had to pay the bills, you know, and to, to be able to explain it to Congress and to the government in a way that would get the job done. One of the few quibbles with Oppenheimer, by the way, Groves in your movie is said to be six, three. Matt Damon's maybe five, ten on a good day. But <laughs> but that's OK. Well, he did have the mustache just like Groves. So right. we'll bring yeah, it in well, you can hide yeah. that with camera. Look at Tom Cruise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very good point. Has there ever been said of anyone in the history of the world? His two loves were physics and New Mexico. Yeah. Well, probably now, because Los Alamos is there and there's a lot of physicists. There. Right. But yeah, at the time, I'm sure. No, it was probably the first time anybody had ever combined those two things.
Um, <laughs> the Trinity Project. I love the way that that term came about. I, I assumed it was you know in Christian theology, but it was specific to John Donne yeah. and the poetry that Offheimer seemed to enjoy. Yes, yeah. So he wasn't a religious person. Um, and he really kept his sort of spirituality close to the vest, but, you know, he certainly loved, and that was another interesting thing about Oppenheimer. He's this great scientist, but he also had this very artistic side and, you know, read uh, poetry. He learned Sanskrit so he could read poetry in Sanskrit. And um, so there was this sort of interesting dichotomy in him of right brain and left brain and, you know, being really, um, you know, sort of creative, but also a great scientist. As far as the bombing of Hiroshima, what I found was fascinating in the dock is they said the reason they picked it was because it was a flat city mm -hmm. and so that you could create more destruction in that respect. What was that like in the terms of doing the research and kind of going to that? Because one of the few criticisms of Oppenheimer, Nolan's film, is that he does not show the destruction. He did so purposefully. He said he didn't mm -hmm. want to do it because it's subjective. It's through Oppenheimer's mind. But I think yeah. one of the most impactful parts of your documentary is seeing the damage, right? Yeah. Seeing the the old B-roll, the footage of people and what the, I mean, it's it's horrifying what they yeah. did to them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we felt that that was really, you know, in a tragic way, the payoff of, of everything that had come before it. And that that was the climax for me of the film. And uh, particularly because we got to interview a Hiroshima survivor. Um, her name was Dr. Tamora, who yeah. was... Uh, she is great. I mean, yeah. she was so outspoken. She said, listen, I wish I had died because all of her family had died. Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah. And she really painted that picture vividly. And you can just, I mean, all these years later, you can just feel the emotion coming out of her and you know, what a horrifying thing to experience this. I think she was 10 years old at the time. And um, yeah, I mean, that and that, you know, was interesting in that Oppenheimer on some level wanted the bomb to be dropped so the world would see how terrible it was and never want to do it again. And so yeah. it's almost like in his mind, these people had to pay the ultimate sacrifice so that we would see what this could do and we'd make sure that we'd avoid it from then on. Yeah, that's a fascinating point you just brought up because I thought that was interesting because everyone says, well, does he regret it? I'm like, well, yes and no. If you're going to, as you said, you're going to build something like this, you kind of want to see it used just to see that, I, you know, the payoff, so to speak. And then, as you said, hopefully it's a turret in the future. But I think it's Nolan specifically who gives you the sound. He said he didn't regret it, mm. but he did spend the rest of his life trying to monitor the scientific outcome of how the bomb could be used, which is a really important distinction, right? It's not like he said, I wish I'd never built this. No, he's glad he built it. I mean, he was told to build it, he built it. And it did the damage that he was taught to do, but he really tried to be careful of how it would be used moving forward, which is an interesting way of looking at things. Yeah. And I think all along in his mind, the way he rationalized his participation in the project was that he wanted to see this as, you know, our title implies, to end all war. He wanted it to be the right. thing that made war impossible in the future. And, you know, on one level, certainly it hasn't eliminated war, but it has, uh, we have not had a world war since World War II. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, but there's still a very, very healthy fear of nuclear weaponry that's keeping the world from going off the edge. Um, and hopefully that will hold, you know, it's, uh, it's all in our control. And, you know, it's, um, you know, whoever kind of, has that nuclear football has has all the power to determine whether this continues to be a deterrent like oppenheimer wanted it to be or you know if it ends up becoming our undoing my dad's a huge einstein guy so i'm going to tell him to watch your documentary because there's there's more einstein stuff in your doc than there is in nolan's movie and one of the best anecdotes you have is that einstein they're both together at princeton 
and this whole issue about security clearance, which I have a friend of mine who was crazy about Nolan's film. He said, because the whole movie is about security clearance. Like that, like is that big a deal? Like this is what you care about? And Einstein says to him, like, what do you do? Why are you getting dragged into this stuff? Like, who cares? Yeah. Like, leave him alone. Tell him to F off kind of thing. Yeah. And then after he leaves, apparently he told the secretary, there goes a nor, which is Yiddish for fool. Yeah. So talk a little more about Einstein's relationship with, with clearly respected Oppenheimer, but did not respect him in that decision making. Yeah, you know, I don't, it's hard to tell exactly what their relationship was. They certainly were friendly. Strangely, Oppenheimer was officially at least Einstein's boss because he ran um, the Institute for Advanced Study at which Einstein worked. And so they had this, you know, cordial but not super warm relationship. Um, and yeah, so Oppenheimer, you know, had to fill him in. Here's what I'm doing. I got to go down to Washington. I'm basically standing trial um for this and einstein thought it was total nonsense but he also felt like why waste your time you know that right. um you know as we say in the film he you know he was the man behind the atomic bomb the government you know ostensibly needed him more than he needed them but he didn't really agree um and so einstein thought he was nuts you know as he said you know there goes a fool he said to a secretary um yeah. to, to go fight it but you know he was different than einstein he was much more political and the stuff about Strauss is fascinating. Again, I mean, he should be thrilled that Robert Downey Jr. is playing in a movie because he's much more <laughs> handsome than the actual guy was. But Strauss is a, is a fascinating character. I've, I've heard people made the Amadeus comparison, Mozart, Salieri, that kind of thing. How much of Strauss's actions and his enmity towards Oppenheimer do you think was fueled by jealousy? Yeah, there was some, um, definitely. He also, weirdly, was Oppenheimer's boss in a way because he was on the board at the Institute for Advanced Study. And so... Um, but yeah, he uh, he also, you know, he was a bit of a war hawk. He was um, aligned with, um, you know, kind of the higher powers in the Air Force and some of the, you know, the more kind of hawkish uh, factions in uh, Washington, D.C. And so he didn't really like, as Oppenheimer sort of got louder and louder in his, um, you know, raising the alarm and his push for, you know, uh, for peaceful, peaceful negotiations over nuclear armament, um, you know, he just felt like the Air Force did, that Oppenheimer was in the way. And, you know, they just kind of wanted to silence him. And he became a key part of that because of his status as being Oppenheimer's boss in some ways. But yeah, I think he was also jealous of the fact that Oppenheimer coming out of the war had been on the cover of Time Magazine, Life Magazine. He was the star scientist in the country, which has kind of been forgotten, but um, well, until now. But uh, yeah, so he got a lot of attention and he was seen as you know the the guy who won the war initially so strauss didn't like that yeah it's made for a fascinating movie not only on the big screen but also your documentary once again to end all war oppenheimer and the atomic bomb make sure you watch it right now on peacock in particular in concert with oppenheimer i think it's a fascinating one too last thing for you you said you talked to nolan for an hour how refreshing was it you talked to him didn't have to worry about once him having to silence his phone because he doesn't have a cell phone yeah <laughs> Oh, I didn't even know that. But yeah, his phone did not ring. So maybe that's true. Um, yeah, he was on he was on Colbert. He says, I don't have a cell phone. He goes, well, you must have to call somebody once in a while. And he goes, what I'll do on occasion is get a flip phone. It's like a burner phone. He'll do it and use it temporarily and then just get rid of it. It's yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Well, he's got people who can make the calls for him, I guess. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> he's got a wherewithal, which you and I do not have. <laughs> Chris Castle, once again, terrific documentary to end all war. Oppenheimer, the atomic bomb on Peacock. Congratulations, Chris. It's a terrific doc. You should yeah. be very proud of it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you once again to Chris Castle. Maybe one day we'll get Chris Nolan, but honestly, 
Hey, that doc's even better than Oppenheimer. Uh, thank you once again to Chris Cody, the entire crew, for supporting us here on Cinephile. In case you've missed the news, once again, we're going to have a Cinephile live watch-along party. Hopefully you can push back a little bit, but apparently three hours of pregame, four to seven o'clock Eastern on that Sunday, March 10th, and then three and a half hours of the Oscars. Myself, David Sampson, Ben Lines, and, and members right now, the Metalux family. Any word from your end, Chris, who's going to be involved? As you said to me last week, you're a little skeptical we're going to be able to get a lot of the gang together for this. Well, because of my trip to New York and stuff, I haven't talked to anyone about it yet, so I'll get back right. to you. <laughs> All right, we'll get some more details on the Cinephile Watch Lunk Party. It's going to be live on the Levitard YouTube page, I can tell you that, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Next week, I myself am headed to Florida uh, for spring training, and so I uh, look forward to a little bit of baseball in addition to next week's podcast. It's a big one. I'm going to give you my Oscar predictions. Leading up to the big day, Oscar predictions coming up next week, and of course, the week after that will be the Academy Awards. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus.